Hey, good morning. Uh, let's go to John chapter 17. We are starting a new chapter today, so we'll be in verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God, we ask that your Spirit would send this word into our hearts, that even as we read it, even as we seek to understand it, that we would be um, understanding, that we'd be given understanding of your, of your Son, of yourself. Um, and we pray that you would reveal yourself to us and that our response would be just this eager, hope-filled uh, desire to glorify you above all else. Uh, as we see you here high and lifted up in this beautiful prayer, uh, I, I ask that you would draw us towards you um, and draw us into prayer with you as we celebrate just your victory in prayer. Bless us. Bless your church in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to be reading... Um, uh, some of these verses in the in the ESV, uh, I read it just uh, now out of the New King James, so if you notice the difference, I am kind of going back and forth between two versions here. Um, but John 17, it's exciting to get here. It's exciting that we're in chapter 17 now. This is uh, just a, a chapter that is full of beautiful theology. It's it's a chapter that is is full of, of hope, of glory, of, of mysteries. Um, it would not be out of place to claim that this chapter contains the greatest prayer of the Bible. And, and that's saying a lot because we're not short on good prayers in the Bible. Um, you know, David makes plenty of good ones. Um, there's, there's the Psalms that Abraham has, you know, a beautiful prayer. Uh, Moses prays. The saints of God have these beautiful prayers that, um, that are ours to study and, and enter into and model our prayers after. But, but this is the only prayer of Jesus that is longer than a few sentences. In the Bible, we see the prayers of Jesus, and they are generally short. This is the only long, extended piece of, of, uh, of prayer, piece of prayer, that, that is recorded for us from Jesus. Now, you know, if you've spent time, if you've had the privilege of spending time with seasoned saints of God that there is a deepness in prayer that exposes the person praying to anyone who can hear them. Prayer says things about the person who prays. Uh, and, and as you see someone, you know, worship who really knows who they're worshiping, or you you listen to someone pray who is, is deep in prayer, who's been praying for a long time, uh, you, you see... Uh, 
the exposed heart of the worshiper. And, and as this is the only long prayer of Jesus recorded anywhere in Scripture, we recognize this as the most important prayer in Scripture because of whose heart it is revealing. Um, because it is revealing something about the most important person. John 17 shows us the heart of Jesus. And more than that, actually, it, it, it is in this prayer, as we will see, that, that where the deep things of God, the Trinity, the unity of Father and Son, the pre-existence of the Son of God, eternity is shown us in John 17. Jesus prays like no one else can pray. Now, the prayer that, that Jesus teaches the disciples, you know, the disciples, one of their good questions that they ask is, Lord, teach us to pray. And, and so Jesus teaches them how to pray, and we, we mistakenly call that prayer the Lord's Prayer. That's what we call it, and we, we probably won't change any time soon. That's the name it's got. Sometimes I'll call it the Our Father, uh, but really, this, in John 17, this is the Lord's Prayer. The Our Father is the disciples' prayer. Jesus doesn't need to pray, Father, uh, you know, forgive us our trespasses, but we do. We, have, we need to pray like that. Um, in, in that prayer, Jesus shows us how we ought to pray. But in John 17, we get to see how Christ and Christ alone can pray. In John 17, um, there, there are parallels between this true Lord's Prayer and the Our Father. There are similarities between the two. Um, both are addressed to God as Father, which is significant. Um, both are both prayers we'll see show uh, great concern and reverence for God's name, hallowed be thy name, and we'll see Jesus pray similar, along similar lines in John 17. Both prayers talk about the coming kingdom of God, and both are concerned with the work of God on earth as it is in heaven. Both prayers include an awareness of evil and potential danger. But there's something about this prayer in John 17 that has no parallel. There's, there's things about the prayer in John 17 that, that is completely, shows it to be completely different than any prayer we see from the lips of disciples or prophets. When the Son of God prays, He is not seeking to discover the will of the Father. He is not seeking to bend the will of the Father, nor is He doing the work of confession where where, you know, our will is bent towards the truth. In the best prayers, you know, you change according to, uh, you know, the perfect standard of God. But in, he, in this prayer, we see perfect Son speaking to perfect Father with perfect understanding. And it's a kind of prayer that we can only dream of participating in. One commentator points out where the Son speaks, He is not seeking to bend the Father to Him. Rather, He is voicing the purpose of the Godhead. The words that clutter our prayers, like, God, I don't know about this. You know, God, I'm confused. God, I've failed again. God, how could you? God, why? Yeah, all of those kinds of prayers, they kind of make sense in our context. None of these are present in this perfect prayer. Those kinds of things may belong in your prayers, but not here. Jesus, having triumphantly declared in the last verse of chapter 16, I have overcome the world, he has no use for those kinds of prayers. 
Now, this prayer is unique among all the prayers of Scripture, as it is not only directed to God, but it is also being offered from God. These are sweet mysteries that we are looking into. One of the uniquenesses of this prayer, since it is offered from Christ himself, is that we are seeing in this prayer something that is eternal in nature. We're not looking at a special occasion prayer, though it is a special occasion to us. We're looking at the kind of prayer that Jesus had likely been praying since the beginning, and the kind of prayer that he prays now. Romans 8.34 says that Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's current, that's present, that's now. Jesus is still praying, and this is what his prayers sound like. John 17 shows us how he intercedes, not just then, but now. Hebrews speaks clearly about Jesus as our great high priest. And in Hebrews 7.25, it says that, the, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. And because of his intercession, John 17 is often called the high priestly prayer. It's kind of a nickname for this chapter. And how great it is that we have recorded for us a prayer by our great high priest. That we have a prayer made by, by your priest for you. And make no mistake that prayer in John 17 is for you. It is for our church today. We have to be careful, of course, in our Bible study with, with claims like that. We have to be careful when people say, this is, a, this is for me, this verse is for me. And it's like, not all of them are the same, uh, have the same applicability. Uh, and it, we can be too often take something that is not for us and mess things up when we think that it is for us. Applying rules or promises to Israel to the modern church, for example, that can be difficult. Taking a proverb as a law when it was obviously intended as a proverb. Or taking God's word to an individual in scripture and then misapplying it as a universal promise. These are dangers that show up from time to time in, in studying scripture. The rule of thumb is that the Bible is not to you, but it is for you. And then the key to getting the most out of scripture for you is realizing what it meant to its, intend, its first intended audience. So John 17 is for, you know, this time, these men, the, the leaven in the upper room. But really, it's different. We recognize the context that Jesus is praying in first century Israel with these specific men at this specific time. But when we read it, and Jesus himself explains in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Christ's prayer in seven, John chapter 17 is not only for the 11 disciples or the first generation of the church. It is for all who would believe in him through their word. And the words of the apostles are for, are for us in the New Testament. We believe the gospel according to scripture, which makes this prayer for us in ways that many scriptures aren't. Now, if you get nothing else, please take this encouragement. Jesus Christ is praying for you. Jesus lives to make intercession for you. Jesus, your great high priest, is enjoying unbroken fellowship with the Father and where he brings your name up rejecting all the accusations against you from Satan and says to the Father, I have lost none of those that you have given me. Now let's look at this prayer. Verse 1. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Okay, let's take this slow. What words had Jesus spoken? Uh, well, broadly, everything it, it, that is said for, for the last three chapters. But specifically, the conversation ended with a, a sort of sobering hope. Um, Jesus had told the disciples, you will weep and mourn. Chapter 16, verse 20. He said, you will leave me and be scattered. Verse 31. In this world, you will have tribulation. Verse 33. But he also told them, the Father loves you. The Father himself loves you. Verse 27. Your sorrow will be turned to joy. Verse 20. And though you will have tribulation in the world, I have overcome the world. Verse 33. There, there is this mix of present hope, or sorry, present sorrow, that is soaked in hope. Jesus acknowledges that the disciples will fail, but still confesses that the Father loves them. And there's plenty of hope for you to take, uh, take to heart in these verses. Jesus offered great comfort, but the job isn't done yet. Christ's words to man are incomplete without Christ's words to the Father. This is the ministry of a priest, after all, representing God to the people and then representing the people to God. And here the disciples have been receiving the words of Jesus for a few years, and now in a very special way they see Christ take their case, take their names before the Father. Christ's words to man are incomplete without Christ's words to the Father. This is true in a couple different ways. You know, the strength of everything Jesus had taught them is made certain when you see the confidence of Jesus in the presence of his Father through prayer. They could have, uh, I believe, they would have an easier time believing the things that Jesus says, like, I'm going to the Father. I go to prepare a place for you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You would, you would have more confidence in those words after you see and hear how Jesus himself prays to the God of the universe his dad. But in a more theological, metaphysical way, we know that Jesus' ministry wasn't just teaching and that the priestly ministry goes in two directions. Jesus wasn't just a preacher, just a good teacher. Jesus has a ministry now, and it is to us by way of intercession. Christ's words to the Father have saving power. And the disciples needed to hear this prayer just as much as they needed to hear the words of Jesus spoken in the previous chapters. In that setting, knowing the weakness of the disciples, knowing the great love that the Father has for them, Jesus prays. The Christmas carol, O Holy Night, it, it, there's the line there where, where we sing, He knows our need to our weakness no, is no stranger. Behold your king. And Jesus is showing himself to be a king and a priest here, but he does so by, by bringing the weakness, the sorrows to the light that the disciples are experiencing and then lifting his eyes to heaven. Jesus is aware of your weakness and his response is to look heavenward. Now, this would have been the common posture for prayer. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, the, the bow your head, close your eyes, and fold your hands, that's mostly an invention of Sunday school teachers who don't want the kids to touch each other during prayer time. Uh, Paul says, lift up holy hands in prayer. And Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven. This is a posture of 
confidence coming from someone who had just said, I have overcome the world. He can lift his eyes to heaven. There's no need for him to bow. This would have seemed, sorry, this would not have seemed out of place to anyone in the room. This was just how people prayed sometimes. But do you see how beautiful it is that after our priest has said the words, you will suffer, you will weep, you will fail, you will scatter. After this, he looks away from the failures in the room and looks toward the God who saves. Now, isn't this a symbol of the work of our intercessor? Isn't this our joy? That the God who sees your sin does not gaze on it? That your Savior, who knows your weaknesses, does not see your weaknesses as a reason to withhold that, that glory from God to, to, to neglect the, the rapt attention that we give the saving God. Jesus knows where to look. And in doing so, he draws our eyes upward with him. Jesus sets his eyes on heaven. This was true physically, literally, uh, and symbolically. And we now fix our eyes on Jesus. Verse 1, again, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus calls God Father, and he invites us to do the same. We know that this is something truly unique to Christ's ministry. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, no one called God Father. This is not because God had not revealed himself as Father, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, he has. The Old Testament has plenty of passages where God is referred to as Father, but always to Israel collectively. The Son of God in the Old Testament imagination is Israel. But the Gospels, Matthew especially, show that the promises of God to Israel are perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true Son of God who can allow us those... Um, to become those given the right to become children of God, to come boldly before our Father's throne. When Jesus says, Father, he is declaring himself to be the true Son. And when he tells the disciples, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven, he is telling them, you are born again, you are adopted into this family, and you also are sons of a true Father. Next he says, the hour has come. The hour is the hour of his death. Jesus has been talking about this for quite some time now. Earlier in his ministry, he would say things like, My hour has not yet come, but as it got closer, as Good Friday and Easter got closer and closer, he spoke from a troubled heart about the hour that was to come. John chapter 12, verse 23, says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour is definitely the time of his suffering and death. In chapter 12, he goes on in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You can see uh, some of the same things being prayed. Father, glorify your name. Now we know that Jesus began his ministry in prayer. He continued his ministry in, by prayer. He would pray every morning before the sun rose. Uh, but like I said before, we don't have these prayers recorded. 
But among the prayers we do have, we can see themes and parallels. And this dedication to the glory of God is one of them. The dedication to the glory of God's name is something Jesus consistently prays about, prays for. And this is also one of the things that we are to pray for. Hallowed be thy name. But look at how Jesus can ask for that. He says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. This is something that Jesus can ask for that we, we really can't, not in the same way. We don't read of Peter or Paul praying, glorify me, God, that I might glorify you. If you tried to pray that, I would expect the words to kind of feel sticky in your mouth. They wouldn't feel right. It wouldn't taste right. And actually what we see in the prayers of the apostles is quite the opposite of what Jesus prays here. Still for the glory of God, but our participation in that looks very different from self-glorification. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But Jesus could say, Glorify me, because he knew who he was. And he knew that it was the will of the Father to receive glory through the Son. Just as there is no way to the Father for man except by the Son, so there is no better way for the Father to be honored, praised, worshipped, and glorified, but by the honor, praise, and worship of the Son, the glory given to the Son. When Jesus of Nazareth is glorified, God is glorified. When the Son is praised as Savior of the world, the Father is glorified. God the Father is glorified in who Jesus is and in what he does. And for what he does, we can look at verse 2. We'll actually read verses 2 and 3. It says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Let us rejoice that God has chosen this means to receive glory unto himself. He is glorified in the salvation of sinners. God is glorified in giving eternal life to you. Now notice the magnitude of what Jesus is claiming. He says that he has authority over all flesh. This is serious. This is probably one of the most clear claims to deity that comes from the lips of Jesus. Authority over all flesh. His authority is total and not merely spiritual or metaphorical, but universal and literal. When he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, he is claiming supremacy over all things throughout all time and space. Listen to the kind of praise for this level and quality of authority that we find in Scripture. Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11. Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 1.15 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Wow! He has authority to create, to sustain, to destroy. He can take what he wants, and with that level of authority, he gives instead. He gives eternal life at the cost of his own life. He explains what is meant by eternal life. Now, the words aren't confusing. When you say eternal life, people know what you're talking about. There is a sim simple meaning that is clear, that's on the surface. Eternal life means living forever. That's what it means, partly. Um, according to Jesus, there's more. There's more to eternity than just length of time or timelessness. Eternity refers to the quality of the time, the quality of a thing. The Word of God is called eternal, and it's not just saying that it will never fade. It means that it is heavenly in nature. The life that Jesus gives, the life that he gives more abundantly, is a heavenly life. And this really isn't a surprise to anyone, after all. This isn't so different than the way we use language and talk about these things. Uh, if you believe in an eternal hell where souls are conscious, you could say that you believe that could be called eternal life. But you wouldn't be using the word eternal or life the way Jesus uses them. It's not just the duration of existence. He says in verse 3 that eternal life, the quality of the heavenly life, the endless heavenly life that he gives, is a life of knowing God. This is, as you might expect, not simply an analytical knowledge, a head knowledge, but this is a knowledge that comes from lived experience, head knowledge versus heart knowledge. It is the life of eternal progress growing in this experiential knowledge of God. In the um, Reading from a commentary here, it says, In the Greek, the verb is in the present subjunctive in indicating the knowledge is a growing experience. You get to learn about the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent forever. And you will be knowing more and more and more of him for infinity. This is what your priest offers you. Verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now it is true that the hour of glorification is yet to come, at this time when he's praying this. The thing which will ultimately glorify God in the truest sense is that which is at the heart of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But Jesus did not wait until the cross to glorify the Father. His whole life served this purpose. Jesus glorified his Father from the moment of his birth onward. And as we'll read in verse 5, he was sharing that glory with the Father even before that, even before the world existed. Jesus glorified the Father through his earthly ministry. He taught, he preached, he healed, he performed miracles, all glorifying the Father. Jesus' ministry was constantly one of pointing upward, looking upward, drawing people's minds to heaven. And these were things that the Father had for the Son to do. Many times Jesus had told the people, I'm not working from my own authority. 
I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm only doing that which my Father has entrusted me to do. I'm only saying the things that my Father has given me to say. And now he is speaking to his Father, saying, I have accomplished the work. I have obeyed perfectly. He did what no man, no nation could do up to this point or since. He obeyed the word of God. He kept the covenant. Now, this is the first, it is finished, that Jesus will say. You're familiar with the second, I'm sure. But Jesus saves by both life and death. His perfect life qualified him to be the sinless sacrifice that was necessary. His life revealed to us the perfection of God, the holiness of God, the love of God, the wisdom of God, and his perfect life was what was presented to God as a, as a uh, sample and as a head of a new perfect humanity. The, this has been the consistent message of the Gospel of John, that, that the Son of God reveals to us the Father. And as we see him being the priest here, he is presenting perfect humanity to God as the priesthood goes in both directions. We read, No man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. His life was the first word, and, then, uh, and his death would be the final word. And, and in verse 4, Jesus says, I have accomplished it. it. It's a kind of saying, it is finished. His death is the next work. And on the cross, Jesus will say again, it is finished. But to say it is finished, or it is accomplished, it is paid in full, which isn't quite what's being said here, but it is, a, it is what's said on the cross. That's not the same as saying it's all over. Something is all over. Something has ended. Things are accomplished. But some things are just beginning. And others are continuing on from where they started from. Jesus, in praying, I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do, is not resigning from life and ministry, but rather anticipating the fullness of it. His eternal life, the life he continues to live post-resurrection, is still powerful to save, an active ingredient in the gospel of salvation. Paul writes this in Romans 9, For if, while we were, his, were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We shall be saved by his life. As Bill Gaither sang, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Go ahead and go on to verse 5. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, once again, we see elements in this prayer that we can imitate, and we see some that we simply cannot. We, like Jesus, can go to God as our Father. We, like Jesus, can pray deeply concerning the glory of God and his kingdom. We can pray not as the giver, but as recipients of eternal life the quality of heavenly life, knowing God as father and friend. But we can't even get near to praying what Jesus prays in verse 5. Here's another one of the most clear and profound statements from Jesus concerning his own deity, his own eternity. Jesus here claims glory of the same kind as God. He claims to have occupied eternity with the Father. Jesus is not speaking as a man here, though he is a man. He had taken on flesh, but before that, he was still God. Jesus here is speaking as 
God of very God, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal, as the Athanasian Creed states. In Jesus' prayer, he looks to heaven, but he's not looking to a place he's never been. Jesus prays, Father, glorify me, but he's not asking for something he hasn't already had. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, as Philippians 2 says. He held it with an open hand, knowing that it's his and cannot be taken from him. Jesus, preparing for the cross, looks to the glory beyond, not as a mystery hoped for, but as a memory held dear. And then for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, verse 5 is all that we're going to cover today, but I want you to see that in this prayer, which will eventually turn towards us as the believers Jesus mentioned in verse 20, that we have a relationship with the God who is praying here. And we even have an opportunity to participate in the life of this prayer. Jesus prays to the Father, glorify me. And we confess that the Father has done this. And we know that he does not need us to add to that glory in any way. However, he has invited us to participate in that glorification. We can glorify Jesus. You can glorify God. Jesus has been given all authority and there's nothing you can do to subtract from that authority. But again, we are invited to participate in it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And we can do that now. We can live now in the kingdom of God with Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, submitting our every, every aspect of our lives to him, placing ourselves under the authority of his word, under the authority of his lordship. Jesus enjoyed glory and perfect union with the Father from eternity past. We didn't. But again, we are invited into the throne room of God. And we are told to watch for our Redeemer. And we have been promised a place in heaven itself. We have even placed, promised a place on, on a throne where this glory will be seen, known, felt, experienced. Where we will know even as we also are known. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your prayers are strong for us. We thank you that when we don't know how to pray, your spirit prays for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. God, I don't know how to pray in light of this prayer, so I simply ask that you would work these truths in, that you would press these seeds into the soil, that you would nurture this small glimmer of awareness of these glories in us and, and, and fan the, the, the coals into flame and give us more light, give us more clarity. By your grace, Lord, let us see the beauties that are being prayed in this passage. Bless your church. We thank you for interceding on our behalf. Amen.